So open your Bibles with me to Esther chapter 4. This has been a weird morning already. Um, the video I was going to show in Sunday school didn't work, and then the live stream's not working. Well, it would work. We just don't know how to do it. The only person who knows how to do it doesn't happen to be here. Uh, and uh, But that's fitting, because Esther's a weird book. And so it's fitting that we start Esther and just have a weird morning. Uh, Esther chapter 4, though, is, is where we're going to read to begin this morning. If you would stand together with me in honor of the word of the Lord, as we read now from Esther chapter 4, we're going to read um, just two verses, verses 13 and 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that uh, to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's household will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we praise you for this good and glorious gift that you have given to us, that by your spirit working through your word, we come to know our God. We get to meet with our God. We are transformed by our God, by your spirit, into the likeness of Christ, our Savior. We pray, God, that you would accomplish your good purposes among us this morning by your spirit, through your word. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word. That the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. you can be seated. Well, after spending a couple of years in the book of Romans, we are making a major transition uh, coming into the book of Esther. First of all, we're transitioning genres of literature. Romans is a personal letter. It's written to the church in Rome. It is very doctrinal. It proclaims the gospel. It unfolds the glories of the new covenant. It is directly applicable to our lives. In other words, we read the book of Romans and Romans tells us this is what you should believe. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is what you should do. This is what you should not do. But Esther is not an epistle. Esther is a historical narrative. Esther is a, a narrative that is set in an ancient world that is very foreign to our own. It involves people who don't even know the gospel. It takes place roughly 500 years before Jesus was born. And it is a very strange book to find in the Bible. It is, it is unique among all the books of the Bible. And it is even unique among all the, the literature of its day. There's no mention of God in this book. There are no miracles in this book. There are no supernatural occurrences in this book. Now, that kind of literature didn't even exist when Esther was written. Esther was the first of its kind. Not, that doesn't only stand apart from the other books in the Bible in that regard. It is unique. No religious activity. No one prays. There are no prophets. There's not a mention of the covenant. There is no mention of the law of Moses. There's not even mention of... Jerusalem. It is such a strange book, in fact, that many have argued wrongly, I might add, that it should not be included in the canon of Scripture. But I trust as we study this book, we're going to see that it actually fits right in with the narrative of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. Esther is a glorious book. I love the book of Esther. Today I hope to give us something of a framework with which to, to look at the book of Esther and to understand Esther because it appears to be a purely secular book where God is not only unmentioned, he appears to be absent. But the truth is, though it appears that way, Esther is a book that is primarily about God. The, the, the story of Esther is often not told that way. It's told in a way that makes Esther and Mordecai, two of the main characters in the story, look like these holy, sinless, virtuous examples of godliness and how we should live our lives. It presents the king, King Ahasuerus, as this dreamy, Disney-esque Prince Charming. If you've ever watched any movies about the book of Esther, you've seen how this works. 
However, this is certainly not the case on either count. On the righteousness of Esther or Mordecai or on the dreaminess of the king. This is not beauty and the beast here that we are reading. Esther is a book that's similar to the book of Judges. It is not a story about good, godly people, although we do see some admirable traits in some of the people involved in this story. But we're not supposed to read Esther and imitate the actions of the people we see in this book. It is a historical narrative. It is telling us what happened. It's not even commentating on whether it's right or whether it's wrong. It's just saying this is how it went. It is a historical narrative about deeply flawed people. So yes, there is some good, but there is also a lot of bad from all involved. When we come to the story of Esther, it's roughly the era of of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're going to follow um, just behind this story. Jews, though, as we come into the book of Esther for several decades now, have been free to return from their exile in Persia. Cyrus the Great allowed the people to return to their homelands, to return to the worship of their gods. And for decades now, the Jews have been free to leave Persia, to return to the land that God gave them, and to return to the worship of God. But the truth is, many of the Jewish people did not return to Jerusalem. They still considered themselves God's people, were God's chosen people, but they continued to live in exile even though God had called them home. They had become Persianized. They lived in Persia and they liked living in Persia. They were were so fully entrenched in their pagan culture that surrounded them, they had no desire to return to Jerusalem. For many of them, they had no desire to return to the worship of Jerusalem's God. And Esther is a story about these Jews. These Jews who should have gone back home and didn't. These Jews who were Persianized. They're not models of faith. We're not meant to imitate them. This story is teaching us something much greater than just giving us some examples that we can emulate. We need to see the book of Esther, the story of Esther, in light of a much bigger picture. Because the Bible is not like any other book. It is the living word of God. Every book that we have in Scripture is God's word. Even Esther. The the events recorded in scripture are there because God wants them there. And they are told exactly the way God wants them to be told. So when we come to the book of Esther and there's no mention whatsoever about God. And we look at the characters and the way the story goes and we go. I'm not really rooting for any of these people. This is told to us exactly the way God wants it told to us. But biblical narrative stories are not just meant to entertain us, although they often do. There are many entertaining stories in our scriptures. The book of Esther is a highly entertaining story uh, to this day. Esther is really telling the story of the, the formation of the celebration of Purim. And, and to this day, when, when the book of Esther is read, it is a raucous scene that is going on. The the ancient Jewish Talmud said that you have to get drunk before you read the book of Esther. That that was what was expected. We want the whole crowd drunk and we're going to read it and it is going to get rowdy. It is an entertaining story to say the least. But these biblical narratives are not there primarily to give us examples to follow. Although there are many good examples. Not every narrative has a positive message. In fact, many narratives provide negative examples. Sometimes they're meant to be inspiring. Sometimes they're meant to draw our contempt. Some even take a mocking tone, as the book of Esther does. But in all of Scripture, God is telling us something. And more than just telling us something, God is doing something. Romans chapter 15 verse 4 says, Whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So why do we have the book of Esther? We have the book of Esther that we might have hope. Why do stories like this produce hope in us? Well, it's, it's simply this, because God is working everything out according to his plan. Beginning in eternity past, extending all the way to eternity future, God is working everything out perfectly. 
according to his plans. And what could give us more hope than that? Turn turn with me quickly to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to come back to Esther. But turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Looking in verse 3. Just hear what Paul says here. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have, received, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul says there in verse 13 that if you were in Christ at a particular time, at a particular moment, you heard the gospel, you believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. These verses tell us, though, that this actually all started much, much earlier than that. Verse 5 says, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So God has a will. God has a purpose. Verse 9 tells us, how how is it that we understand what God's purpose and God's will is? That in love we were predestined before the foundation of the earth to be adopted as his sons according to the purpose of his will. He tells us in verse 9 that this will is set forth in Christ. What is God's will? What is his plan that was set forth in Christ? Verse 10 tells us to unite all things. To unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven. Things on earth. And so when we look at the book of Esther. We're going to read about an evil villain named Haman. The the Jews when they would read this story. Anytime Haman's name would say. They had noisemakers. And there would be loud boos and hisses and cursing. Wicked Haman. We see this strange Jewish man, Mordecai, this beautiful young woman, Esther, an egotistical king, Ahasuerus. But before we get into the details of this story, we need to know that God, who is the author of this book, has a plan in all of history. And that plan is ultimately to unite all things to himself in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one mediator between God and man. And I I say all of this up front to make this point. The pictures, the promises, the symbols of the Old Testament are all pointing to the fulfillment of God's plan. God has been working this plan out from the foundation of the earth. And so we need that lens. We need to be looking through that lens as we read the Old Testament. We need to read it in its full context. The context that Paul gives to us here in Ephesians of God. Working to bring all things together in Christ. So, for example, then, when we get to chapter 3 of Esther, Haman, the bad guy in Esther, becomes angry with Mordecai. As Haman passes through the crowds, everybody bows down to pay homage to him except Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't bow down. Haman becomes angry. And decides to kill Mordecai because Mordecai didn't bow down. But not just Mordecai. It tells us he sought to kill all the Jews. 
So here's Haman. He feels disrespected by this one Jewish man. So naturally, he wants to exterminate the whole Jewish population. Genocide is the answer to this one man not bowing down. Seems like a bit of an overreaction. Well, we need to understand what's going on. We need to understand there's something much greater than what our eyes can see. And we'll have this theme repeatedly through Esther. There's something much more than what our eyes can see that's going on here. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the fall of mankind into sin. What we have is the first presentation of the gospel. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. So so this plan of God to, to bring all things together, to unite all things in the Lord Jesus Christ is being opposed at every point by this serpent, this very serpent from the very beginning of, of scripture from Genesis chapter three. And as we see Haman, Haman is just one of this serpent's agents. As we read this book, if, if Haman had been successful, and it looks like as we go through the story, he almost was. It was, it was so close. The, the book of Esther just turns on these. It just so happened this way. And it, and it happened this way. These all seeming coincidences. Well, if Haman had had his way, the Jewish people would have been destroyed. And the Savior promised in Genesis 3 would never have been Born. And so even in, in the seemingly minor, random, coincidental details of Scripture, it is all part of this plan that God is unfolding. This great plan of God to unite all things in himself. When God's people of every race, every tribe, every tongue will gather together to glory in the one who crushed the serpent's head. And so what God's doing in the book of Esther, Esther is the telling of a story of of God preserving his people because it's out of those people that the Messiah will come. So God's going to make sure his plans will stand. He is going to make sure that his will is accomplished in all things. And so we need to understand the big point. We need to understand Esther in the context of the full counsel of God's word. When we read the story of Esther, it's not just the story of the Jews being saved. It is our story. It is the story of our salvation. And if we miss the big picture, we're going to read these stories like Esther and other stories that we read in the Old Testament. And we're going to miss the whole point. We're going to say, Esther was a nice girl. You should be a nice girl, too. You should just be a good, godly girl like Esther was. Haman was a bad guy. Don't be mean to people. Certainly genocide is something we shouldn't participate in. Oh, the king was arrogant. You should be humble. And that's going to be our big takeaway, but God is doing something much greater than moral lessons in this story. The book of Esther is a story about God. Esther is a story all about the sovereignty of God. Esther is is perhaps the the clearest, most striking picture of the doctrine of the providence of God that we see in all of Scripture. Providence just means God is at work in Esther, in all the universe, in the ordinary events, in everyday decisions of life to accomplish his good purposes. Esther looks a lot more like our lives than the Exodus does, doesn't it? The way we live our lives. Esther and Mordecai then are not the heroes of this story. God is the hero of this story. He even works through the wickedness of men to accomplish his good purposes. Nothing in the universe happens except through him. By his will. For his purposes. Romans 11.36 says, From him, through him, and to him are all things. He is working everything out according to the counsel of his will. And God never fails. And so even in the worst things that happen to us in our lives, these things will turn out for our eternal good. That produces hope in us if we believe that. Whether we see it with our eyes or not. To know that nothing is out of control. And nothing is going to get out of control. Just on on that note, some biblical pastoral advice for us. Don't interpret the events of your life 
by their immediate impact, or even by by their seeming personal relevance to your life at the moment. And it's not that their, their impact on us in the moment doesn't matter. It's not that God doesn't care. We're told in the Psalms, he stores our tears in his bottles. He keeps track of our tossing in the night and our tossing and turning. God is not far off. God is not distant and aloof. He cares. But if we are so focused on ourselves and our understanding of what's going on, rather than the truth of God's word, we will interpret the events of our life the wrong way. As they relate only to us, as they impact us in this moment, as they make us feel, and we will have no chance of seeing God at work in our circumstances. We might even become angry with him. We might even doubt him. We might doubt his love. We might doubt his power. We might doubt his faithfulness. But biblical thinking isn't primarily concerned with this present moment. We are called Christians to think generationally. More than that, actually, to think eternally. In light of God's plan from before the earth was formed. And that is challenging for us, is it not? It's, it's, it's particularly challenging in this day and age where our lives are so centered on our own comfort, where our lives are so centered on our own convenience. Our food is fast. Our computers are fast. Our phones are high tech. We must be catered to. Our feelings must never be hurt. We're in danger of being like the Jews in Persia in Esther's day. God had called them out of exile. God had called them into his kingdom, but they had become enamored with another kingdom. Or at least had become so accustomed to it that they were dull. Thought it was just as good to be there as it was to be anywhere else. We so easily lose sight of the truth that God is working his eternal plan in all things. That that plan will never change. That plan will succeed. That brings us to our text today in Esther chapter 1. Was that all introduction? Yes, it was. In fact, it was. Esther chapter 1. Turn there with me. We're going to look at this opening paragraph of the book of Esther. Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen, purple and silver rods and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. The royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. This opening paragraph of the book of Esther is is one of the most vivid pieces of descriptive writing in all the Bible. Really only two other things are described with this much detail. The tabernacle and the temple. That's not an accident. The tabernacle and the temple are God's throne on earth. His, his, his kingdom's earthly symbol. And so here as the book of Esther opens up, we are introduced to King Ahasuerus. And where do we see him? Seated on his throne. Displaying his glory. Verse 4 tells us this party was for the purpose of showing the riches of his royal glory and splendor and the pomp 
of his greatness. And we get this tone as, as the author writes and describes all these things in detail. of this, this is just a massive, huge spectacle that is going on. The king and his kingdom are intentionally introduced to us here at the beginning of Esther as attempting to rival God's glory. Ahasuerus wants to be God. He wants to sit on the throne. He wants to receive the glory. He wants to receive the praise. History tells us this is very true of this king that this book writes to us about. We actually know a lot about this king. The the name Ahasuerus that he's called in the book of Esther means chief of rulers. And it's a throne name. It's like Pharaoh for the Egyptians or Caesar for the Roman emperors. They're all called Caesar. They're all called Pharaoh. They're all called Ahasuerus. We know him by his Greek name in history. His Greek name is Xerxes. It means the sovereign, the ruler over men, the hero of heroes. History tells us that Xerxes was petty and conniving and promiscuous and arrogant and brutal and ruthless. In one inscription that that has survived, this king writes this about himself. I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of this entire earth far and near. That was true. Xerxes was the most powerful man in the world. He was a ruthless man. He was a wicked man. He was once given a gift of what in today's currency would equal several million dollars from a man named Pythias. He was given this gift to support his invasion of Greece. Xerxes was so moved that he returned the money to Pythias... And he gave Pythias gifts on top of it. He was so moved by this this man's generosity to support his war effort in invading Greece. And then Pythias asked Xerxes, in light of his kindness and Xerxes' gratefulness, could my son stay home from the war? Could he stay home from the invasion of Greece? Xerxes was so enraged, he ordered Pythias' son to be cut in half. And when the army marched out to invade Greece, they marched between the two halves of this man's son. Xerxes' invasion of Greece is one of the most famous failures in all of history. When he marched on Athens, he marched with an army, some speculate 150,000, some as many as 300,000. He was met there by a commander from Spartan named Leonidas, a very famous story with his 300 Spartans. They met at Thermopylae Pass. It was this this narrow gateway they had to get through. The sea was on one side, the mountains were on the other side. And these 300 Spartans famously held off Xerxes' massive army of hundreds of thousands for three days and gave Athens time to fully evacuate before the armies arrived there. Later during that same failed invasion, Xerxes' army had to cross the river and they built two bridges to do it. The night before they were supposed to cross, a storm came and destroyed the bridges entirely, which Xerxes handled with calm dignity. He did not handle it with calm dignity. In fact, this was a delusional man. He lost his mind. He ordered then a soldier to beat the river with a whip 300 times. In punishment, while the other soldiers were to stand and shout and curse the water. He ordered a pair of shackles to be thrown into the river to symbolize his sovereignty over the waters. And the engineers who built the bridge were all beheaded. On his way back home from his failed invasion of Greece, when he returned to Susa, where the story of Esther is seated, and we'll see in Esther, it says Susa, the citadel, so there's Susa, one of the capital cities of Persia. Susa, the citadel, is, is this sort of royal um, center of the city, right? So there's, there's a protected fortress-like area where, where the king lived and where the high-up nobles were. That's Susa, the citadel. But on his return there to the city, angry, frustrated, embarrassed by his failure to defeat the Greek city-states, he spent the winter in the city of Sardis with his brother, 
and his sister-in-law. While in Sardis, he attempted to seduce his sister-in-law, and she shot him down. She rejected his advances, and so he had that sister-in-law and her husband, his own brother, tortured to death. This is the king we see seated on the throne in Susa. This arrogant, ruthless, wicked man. Susa was the place to be. Again, this is the, this is the most powerful empire in the world. This is the most powerful, wealthiest ruler in the world. Susa, and particularly Susa the citadel. This is where the rich and the famous are. And Xerxes is the power in Susa. And not just in Susa, but in the whole world. And so the book of Esther opens up showing us what a big deal Xerxes is. Several times in this passage, we're told, Ahasuerus reigned. He sat on his royal throne. He displayed his royal glory, the splendor of his greatness. Xerxes and his kingdom are a graphic picture of earthly glory and power. But what Esther shows us is that power, that glory is only on the surface. Because above Xerxes' throne is a far greater throne. Xerxes is in the hand of the almighty, invisible God. He appear, Xerxes appears to be sovereign. King Ahasuerus, he claims to be sovereign. But he's really just a pawn in the hands of the true sovereign. The one who has been working all things to accomplish his will and his purposes in all of eternity. God is not threatened by Xerxes. He is using him. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God's not threatened by Xerxes. Xerxes is a, is a pawn. The original readers of Esther would have gotten the message right away. As they read of the splendor and the, the celebrating that's going on, this lavish feast, 180 day feast, was immediately followed by him leaving to invade Greece. We, we get the setting here. It's in the third year of Ahasuerus' reign. It tells us the armies are all gathered there. The original audience knows as they read this book and they're hearing of all the splendor and all the celebrating, he's about to go out on one of the greatest failures of all time with his massive armies and not get the job done. The, the, the irony here, and there's a lot of irony in the book of Esther. King Ahasuerus is, is presented in all of his glory, but he is leaving for a failed mission. Xerxes, the most powerful man in the world, and he was. He is prevented, presented in this story as something of a joke. Repeatedly throughout the book of Esther. The, the name Ahasuerus, when spoken in Hebrew, is something like Ahasverosh. It sounds like King Headache. They, they mock this man when this story is read. He's full of arrogance. He claims to rule the whole world like a god. He claims divinity, but in Esther, he can't make one decision for himself. See that as we go through the book. He can't decide anything. He is naive. He is easily manipulated. He can't even control his wife. He certainly can't control his temper. That's fitting. That's a fitting portrait. How, how does God respond to those who seek to thwart his eternal plans? With mockery. With derision. He laughs at them. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds apart. Cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. Terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. <coughs> no, no king. No nation in all of history. No, no supernatural power for that matter. 
will ever even come close to dethroning the Lord of glory. When all of these, when all of these things present themselves as, as potential rivals, God in derision and anger and judgment laughs at them and says, I've set my king on Zion's hill. No one will ever come close to upsetting God's plan to unite all things together to himself in Christ. He he has been orchestrating every event in world history and even before world history to perfectly accomplish his good will to bring all things to their culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel chapter 4 verse 34 says his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So no, God is not worried about earthly powers. Even those that shake their fist at him, even those that try to oppose his rule, this is not a power struggle. God has no rivals. Persia is not a rival for God. Ahasuerus is not a rival for God. Now the sobering truth is we live in a culture that's every bit as evil as Persia was. We hear of the wickedness of, of, of these kings. And you read history and it is shocking. Ahasuerus and his, or Xerxes and his wickedness. Xerxes' uh, famous wife that history tells about was a, a woman named Amestris who was just as evil as he was and committed all kinds of atrocities as well. We hear these things and, and we think how wicked they were, but the truth is we're at least as bad as they are. Just like Xerxes wanted to be worshipped as a god, our culture demands to be worshipped as God. Our culture has set itself up as a rival for God's glory. Our nation has boldly taken its stand against God, shaking our puny, weak little fist in God's face. The state supported, even state funded, Holocaust of abortion is far worse than the atrocities committed in Persia, if we're just going to talk sheer numbers. The corruption and medical mutilation of children in the trans movement and the absolute insanity that is going on with that. The wholesale rejection of God's good created order of us as male and female. What's going to happen in the month of June everywhere you look? Pride month. You won't be able to escape it because our culture will revel in it and celebrate it to a level that really not even Christmas gets to. Our kids are being discipled in this in their schools. Anything they turn on on the TV. The Muppets are now teaching this. The Muppets of all things. Blue's Clues, SpongeBob, PBS shows, Disney shows, you name it, you go down the list. They're all teaching these things. They're all discipling the children in this. Satanic imagery and messages are proliferating in the world. Target stores have just gotten into a big issue because their pride promotion things, the pride things that they're selling, have, have included some satanic imagery. Things like a Baphomet that says Satan respects pronouns. Which is true. He does. All of this can make Christians very fearful as we look at the world around us. Especially when you add in then things like terrorism, wars, threats of persecution. But friends, God is not fearful. In fact, God mocks the foolishness of nations like ours. We who think we are so mighty, we who think we can do whatever we want, are really just pawns in the hand of God. And since God is not worried, his people should not be worried either. Why? Why should we not be worried? Well, it's because of this thing that we see play out in the book of Esther. Providence. God is at work, 
even in the evil of men. God will accomplish his plans. He will fulfill his covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. Though God may seem hidden in history and in your life, he is not absent. He is ruling. He is reigning through everything that happens. While the nations rage, he says, I have set my king on holy Zion's hill. He rules. And so no no matter how many kingdoms there may be, no matter how powerful they may seem, there is only one king. He alone is sovereign. He reigns supreme in every generation. He reigns supreme in all of eternity. Providentially ordaining all things to accomplish his will of uniting all things in Jesus Christ. Because that's true, no matter what our culture is telling us, To be united to Christ is to be on the right side of history. It's to be in the right. It's to be on the winning side. And it's not about being on the winning side in the next 50 years. It's about being on the right side of eternity. So we're called then to be salt and light. Don't bow your knee to the culture. No matter how powerful persuasive they might seem. Don't honor the culture's demands that you worship it. God is seated on his throne unimpressed. He is amused by how pathetic the powers of this world are. Literally, God is making fun, derisively laughing at these earthly powers that attempt to overthrow his rulership. He holds them in contempt. He will deal with them at the appointed time. This, 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 this laughter the scripture tells us God does is not a dismissive thing. Oh, it doesn't matter. No. It's the laughter of one who holds all authority and will judge rightly. The, the only power this world can have over me is the power I give to it. The world cannot touch my soul. This is what it means to to believe the gospel. My life is hidden with Christ in God. No power in this world can separate me from the love of God. Christian, that's true for you. The only power the world can have over you is the power you give to it by loving the things of the world. That's how you give the world power. You love the things of the world. Because really that's all that they can take from you. So if you love your possessions, if you love your social standing, if you love your reputation, if the worst thing you can imagine is being labeled a bigot, being labeled closed-minded or backwards or dumb, then you've probably already capitulated. You're not just in trouble. You've probably already done it. And, And what do you need to do? You need to repent. You need to renounce that. Love of the world. You need to repent and you need to turn and you need to walk in faithfulness. But, but here's where our hope is found. Our, our hope isn't found in, in our ability to do and say all the right things. We're going to see in the story of Esther. <coughs> our, our two heroes in the story, Esther and Mordecai, they're not real heroic. They don't always do the right things. Our hope's not found in ourselves. Our hope is found in God. That, that, that as the Puritans said, God uses crooked sticks to make straight lines. That's what we see in the book of Esther. Our hope is this. God wins. And since God wins, the gospel wins. This world is not going to hell in a handbasket. Our nation has placed itself in a very dangerous predicament. I don't know what the future holds for the United States of America We have set ourselves up in opposition to God. How how did we do that? Well, one of the ways we did it is that the American church has been very weak. It's been very self-focused. It's been very fearful. It's been very compromised. We've been more concerned with our own personal freedom, with what makes us happy with what makes us feel good and gives us goosebumps. We've stopped teaching the whole counsel of God's word in favor of motivational speeches and neat experiences. And so now here we are, in a sense, in exile. Like Esther, 
we're in Persia when we should be in the promised land. But also, friends, like Esther, God has us here for such a time as this. This is our time. God is the one who has ordained the times and the places in which we would live. And this is our time. We must not remain silent. We should not be obnoxious either, by the way. Our lives are to be marked both by grace and truth. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it's the passage where we get uh, the term apologetics from, giving a defense of the faith. But Peter says, give, give a proof for, for, for the hope that you have, and then he says to do it with gentleness and respect. We must again, though, see ourselves as the people of the one true king, the one who rules, the one who reigns right now, even if we can't see it. We need to believe the words of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, Paul says, For he, that's Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God put all things in subjection under his feet. One of the ways we've gotten to the place that we're at is that the American church has suffered under a defeatist view of Christ's return. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. It's all falling apart. It's all going to burn. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. And then Jesus will rapture us out. And then things will get worse yet. And then he'll come back and squash everybody. And that's what we expect to happen. And so essentially what we're saying is the Great Commission is going to fail. The gospel is not going to succeed. Matthew chapter 28 verse 18. Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Behold I am with you always to the end of the age. So is that going to happen or not? Because what we've been teaching for generations in this country is, no, the nations won't be made to be disciples. No, they won't be obedience to Christ and his teaching. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. That has led many Christians to completely disengage. To to fearfully cloister themselves in. And the best we got now is to have awesome experiences in our churches with rock and music. And all the cool stuff and and speeches that kind of fire us up to to have our best lives now. One of my heroes of the faith years ago I heard say, you don't polish the brass on a sinking ship. He's still one of my heroes of the faith, but that was a bummer. But that's the thinking that people have. That is not the biblical call for Christians. That is not the call for us. 1 Corinthians says, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Then the last enemy to be defeated is death. Paul there is directly drawing from Psalm 110, which is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the reigning Jesus is doing right now. This is what's happening right now. Jesus is seated at the right hand of power. And this is what he is doing. He is reigning until all of his enemies are put under his feet. And so when Jesus returns, he will be returning as a triumphant king, not as a king with a battle still to fight. He will return as one whose enemies have been put under his feet. And how... Does that happen? How does he intend to put all his enemies under his feet? Well, brothers and sisters, that's the Great Commission. It's through us. It's through his church. He says, all authority has been given to me, therefore you go make disciples. Matthew 16, verse 18, he says, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is our time. The point of Esther is this. 
Two things. Number one, God has eternal purposes that will stand. He's controlling all of history to accomplish his good plan. And number two, he intends to use you to do it. You are responsible for what you do and for what you don't do. You will answer to God for what you do and for what you don't do. If we can get a hold of these two ideas, we will understand the book of Esther. But more importantly, we will know how to live in this time that God has given us, in this world in which he has placed us, in this exile we find ourselves in, in our Persia. And we'll be filled with hope. We'll be filled with hope if we believe this. I, my prayer as we go through this wonderful book is that it would fill us with a drive to be the people of the one true king in this world, proclaiming his lordship. And that we would be filled with hope as we do so. And that's what God intends to do through his word in us. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, I rejoice in, in you, our God, the one who rules and reigns over all things. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who took on flesh and humbled himself, bearing our curse, bearing our shame, bearing the wrath that we deserve for our sins on the cross, rising triumphant from the grave, having conquered sin, having conquered hell, having conquered death, ascended to the right hand of power where he intercedes on our behalf perfectly, flawlessly, as we sang together this morning. Where he is ruling and reigning and putting his enemies under his feet. We rejoice in the, the promised triumph of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This good news. We rejoice in our conquering, ruling king. And we rejoice that you, the almighty God, the creator of all things, the, the thrice holy God who cannot tolerate sin, who will surely judge rightly the living and the dead, the one who exalts nations and casts them down, The God of heaven who, who mocks at the most powerful earthly leaders who would seek to rise up against him. We rejoice that this God, who would be so unreachable for us, has made himself our father. Has made us his sons and his daughters through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That, he, that you have hidden us in Christ. Such that it is no longer we who live, but Christ in us who lives. Lord, we rejoice in you. We pray, God, that you would make us faithful. Grant to us courage and humility, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We have